Welcome to Open Plaza, a podcast created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode, we focus on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. My name is Stephen Detrolio Coakley, and today we bring to you a conversation between Martile Moros and Melissa Pagan about motherhood in the academy. For more information about today's talk, go to hdiopenplaza.org. Hello, uh, my name is Dr. Melissa Pagan. I am an assistant professor and director of graduate religious studies at Mount St. Mary's University in Los Angeles. Mount St. Mary's is a women's institution, Catholic women's institution, a Hispanic-serving institution. About 65% of our students, I believe, are, are Latinas. Um, and today I have with me Hi, I'm Dr. Matilde Moros, and I also teach uh, gender, sexuality, and women's studies, so large numbers of uh, women, Latinx, queer, LGBTQ students, and populations of first-generation Latinx, Latina students, and I have done administrative work in the past and done other types of work as a professor, but I, too, am assistant professor. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much for sitting with me today, um, Mati. Uh, we're going to be having a conversation around what experiences or what our experiences have been um, as women who are um, Latinas um, but raising children in the academy, um, both in terms of some of the struggles as we've moved through our doctoral programs, um, but also um, some of the, the positive right, outcomes um, that have come from this very specific set of experiences that we've had as mothers uh, Latinas in the academy. So one of the experience I think that we, one of the experiences we share is both having been pregnant in the academy. Mm-hmm. First child was born while I was in first master's program and sort of how the academy doesn't really expect that out of its women students. And it's not necessarily that people avoid you, but people do start looking at you like, are you really here Mm -hmm. for what you say you are? I think that a lot of my compañeras in class, and maybe yours too, are were people that just did not expect to have families, Mm -hmm. um, especially if they were considering going on with graduate work. Mm-hmm. And I know that for you, you also had children while in the academy. I mean, got pregnant and delivered babies. That's right. And so when I entered my doctoral program, I already had one um, child, my daughter, who I had during my first master's um, degree. And I had another child during my second year of coursework and then a third during my comprehensive exams year. And similar to your experiences, there were a lot of raised eyebrows, (laughs) individuals who were very surprised that I would have the, you know, quote unquote, nerve to believe that I could be both a successful doctoral student or successful in the academy and continue to have children. Um, It reminds me of uh, that, quote unquote, the nerve um, was actually a, a quote that's taken directly from this experience I had in the library, and I was visibly pregnant at the time. And a woman who I was studying with a bit in women, 
um, gender and sexuality studies, was really taken aback um, by seeing me pregnant and said, you have a lot of nerve to be walking around here like that. And she wasn't saying it because she was harboring those judgments herself, but that she knew and was anticipating what was already happening, right? The judgments and the assumptions that were made about how seriously I took the program, um, the plausibility that I might even finish. These are all questions that continued to, to sort of plague me um, as I went to conferences, right? Folks had lots of questions for me um, about how I was going to attempt to negotiate and navigate through sort of these two um, seemingly disconnected worlds. And I could say, too, a little bit just in terms of the, in, the embodied experience of being pregnant and the ways that already as Latinas, right, our bodies are read in particular ways. And having that additional layer of, of hyper visibility, but also the way that that also led to my erasure was an interesting experience to have as a doctoral student. Um, it definitely had me um, doubting myself, um, second guessing my, you know, family planning. So for me, during my first pregnancy, I got pregnant the second year and had baby that was in the first year of life, my third year of my master's. And this was an Ivy League school. And when mm -hmm. everyone finished, when we graduated, everyone had fantastic jobs mm -hmm. and plans. And all I had was, I'm going to go take care of my kid. And I proceeded to take seven years off between programs and birth two other babies. So by the mm -hmm. time I got to the second master's program, I had two babies in diapers, one nursing, and one entering school. Mm -hmm. And again, the sort of expectation that you're really here for this mm -hmm. um, at a school that required six classes at a time, where maybe some of my male counterparts were starting families, young families, Absolutely. but the, the, the sort of um, look, the high raised eyebrows, the sort of you've got a nerve kind of attitude, I don't think was directed so much as to toward them as it was toward toward me Absolutely. because I was still nursing if we went to an event and I would start nursing mm. that was a whole other experience so like you the embodied experience of being pregnant but also just running around with little kids and right. you're the student not your spouse right. that was that was the experience during the master's when I started my doctoral program my youngest was entering school mm. so all three were now in school and all the different things that happen when children are in school, they got sick, et cetera, and I was commuting to, to school. I didn't get so much of the sort of backlash from faculty mm -hmm. or even administration. It was more the sense of the rest of my fellow students who might not have children and would have different kinds of time scheduled to devote to their studies, to prepare material for conferences, to get through their work. Mm -hmm. And so the difficulties of being a Latina mom going through a program mm -hmm. developed into real life crises at different points, issues in terms of partnerships mm -hmm. with my spouse, issues in terms of commuting a long distance to get to classes, issues of trying to sort of sneak away to get my work done mm -hmm. because I had very real responsibilities, these mm -hmm. three children. Um, but I wanted to also have this conversation with regard to how, for example, the Hispanic Theological Initiative, the community that was built there, 
not only cohorts in our different programs, but that that sort of joint experience of being Latinas in the academy and how there were other women who were now done and were professors mm -hmm. and, and people in the pipeline with us who were going through their programs that supported us emotionally, sometimes financially, sometimes, right. you know, with whatever babysitting, whatever time, et cetera. So, so maybe share a little bit of that experience. What has it meant to be a Latina doing a doctoral program in today's day and age, right? Yeah, some of the, the struggles that you referenced were very profound um, for me as well, trying to move through mm, the program and trying to finish as you said, I, I had much less time than other folks did um, to prepare my work. I always was negotiating um, not just finding childcare, adequate childcare, but also the cost of it. And even to attend a conference, right, it's, it's assumed that, I mean, it's hard enough to just prepare your work and things like that, but the, the logistics that go into, well, how, how will I afford to attend this conference because it's going to cost me an additional, you know, $1,500 to take, to have my kids taken care of for a week if I don't have this amount of um, people able to do it for free. Um, so every conference travel experience, it was always a, 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 an experience of great anxiety for me. But you know that it's absolutely necessary, right, for moving your career forward or for being taken seriously, right? Um, you want to increase your visibility as a scholar, and so you're expected to do certain things. And so not doing it or falling short because you have these very real material, right, limits was oftentimes a little bit um, scary for me. In terms of HTI, I, I mean... They were this well that never dried up um, in terms of resources. And that's not just financial, because there certainly was some of that support that was there and present and made it possible for me to do more, but also the, just the community. And being able to call on other women who also have children or who have navigated through this or who have also experienced, right, because during the course of my doctoral program, I also ended up um, not being partnered anymore, right? So um, I all of a sudden was a single mother attempting to navigate, um, having two really babies, right? My, my sons are 10 months apart. Navigating two babies without a partner and trying to finish this monumental task of the dissertation. So it was wonderful to be able to, to call on individuals who were always there and I think that one of the first takeaways, right, is that you can't, you can't do it alone, nor do you have to. And it was a, it was a lesson I learned early on in, um, when I started to encounter a lot of these struggles, is that I have to be able to reach out and feel comfortable doing so. It doesn't mean I'm a failure or that I can't get my you know, stuff together. It just means that I need some additional support to help me navigate through these specific set of circumstances that you know, were sort of different points of crisis right. um, in my life. So I had similar experiences, mm -hmm. and I won't necessarily narrate all the, because it's it's very close to what you just uh, mentioned. And the reason why I thought this would be an interesting conversation to share is because I know that there are others out there 
mm-hmm. living through these very similar experiences and that the academy is not always prepared for people who sort of break the mold. First, it wasn't prepared for women entering or people of color or minoritized mm-hmm. communities. But now that people are there, when p- women do come in, it is almost expected or becomes a reality that they will not be raising a family while doing these programs. Um, A common question I got, not only from from peers and and mentors, but also even within HTI, not just women, but the the entire community, HTI, the Hispanic Theological Initiative, Mm -hmm. right, was once I was finalizing my program, it's like, I really don't know how you did it. It was this sort of amazement they moved through this program with me they they were supportive they knew my sort of ups and downs and still didn't know how I did it and I wanted to reflect on the fact that I think you have and I have these examples these pillars of other women mothers etc in our background that have done whatever Mm -hmm. to make it through to raise their families and that I think if you come from a community that has struggled and not just survived, but thrived, Mm -hmm. then there is no other option. Dropping out of a program where you sense that you have a calling to to do this PhD because you have this strong calling to teach or to be in the academy, it's just not an option. So Mm -hmm. everything else that's going on is just, that's life, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was my experience in terms of what kind of question is that? I did it because I didn't have an option to quit. What else was I going to do? Right. And that is a comment that I continue to receive, right? I don't know how you did it. I don't, I, I wouldn't have been able to do it. And I sit and I think, huh, I, I wonder if that's actually true. Maybe, maybe not. For me, in my head, there was nothing else to do but just to keep moving forward, right? To, to, to try as best as I could to navigate through the spaces. And anything that comes up with my children, anything that comes up in my work, I just, okay, this is what needs to be taken care of now. And I'm going to just take care of it, and then I'll move on. You know? Right. And, and it's not to say that it's not hurtful or very, no. very producing, very much producing of pain and anxiety and all sorts of troubles, right? But how we manage through that has led to to other spaces. I'm I'm thinking we just ha- we've just started this conversation about beginning programs, about moving through our doctoral programs. Mm-hmm. And how this experience of I just moved through it and life sort of moves on Mm -hmm. now develops into then becoming professors, right, with full-time positions at institutions that serve Latinx students Mm -hmm. and how much that experience mm, in some spaces may not even be valued or understood as part of my skill set or part of your skill set as having lived through this experience. Um, even in the design of courses, the types of materials that we read, mm-hmm. how we approach feminism, ethics, we're both social ethicists, right? Mm-hmm. That this particular experience, not just as a sort of homage or, or homage to motherhood, mm-hmm. but the, the issue of struggling mm-hmm. in a space that does not accept you as you are with the situations you're living, et cetera, and that mm-hmm. our students, at least in my experience, my students are going through sometimes similar experiences, sometimes their parents, sometimes they're um, dealing with their parents, um, being first generation, sometimes whatever the struggle is, right? Mm-hmm. Because they see me as someone who has children their age, they might 
recognize that, you know, I'm more their parents' age and, and here, Dr. Moros, you are able to see me in all these different ways, the experience of living in the U.S., you know, whatever experiences, and they can relate because I've been through a space of struggle and I that's how I approach my classes, mm-hmm. right? Um, living through multiple spaces and then valuing that lived experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I have a very similar experience and... It, if there's anything I absolutely love about my institution, it it's the students that I serve. And I have similar reactions from students when they find out I am a mother. It's not something that I hide from them. Um, I, I speak about it, um, these experiences, quite frequently. But they say, oh, wow, you know, you're, you're so young and you're, you're so uh, accomplished and, and you're a mother like I am or you struggled through this like, like I have. And I don't want to valorize, I don't want to, um, I don't want to romanticize the emo- additional emotional labor that uh, women of color, in particular faculty members, have to take on. So it's not that. Um, there is an, an, a tremendous amount of emotional labor that then goes into speaking with your students um, about your own experiences, helping them navigate through theirs. First-gen students, they're, they show up you know, at my office and they want to have these discussions. And where else will they go? Right? And so we, as, we assume that responsibility. Um, and, and this obviously speaks to broader institutional structures and problems, right? The fact that we take on this labor. But it is there. And like you said, it's, it's a part of a skill set, right, that, that we have. It's, it's a benefit that we bring to our institutions. And not just for being Latinas in the academy, no. but because we raised generation a generation of children or we are in the process of still parenting, that then our young students come in mm-hmm. and experience all sorts of trauma and pain, and we are there. The issue that I'm having is that if the academy wasn't really prepared for us coming in, mm-hmm. both as Latinas and as women and then as parents, when these students are going through, one of the issues that we see is a national trend is, for example, many institutions are having difficulty retaining Latino students mm-hmm. and retaining students of color, period. Latino and African-American males don't make it past the first year. And the, and then the institution questions mm-hmm. itself and says, well, why? Mm-hmm. And the lack of recognition of the skill set that someone like you or someone like me might bring, mm-hmm. right, I think could be part of that, that if the emotional labor weren't part of the free mm-hmm. service but would be counted as service to the university or be counted as part of the sort of skill set, right, and be recognized in that way, mm-hmm. I think that students wouldn't feel like they, they sort of have to hide and come around the corner and not even make an appointment but show up, but that mm-hmm. that it would be sort of, no, the, the institution is ready for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I'm looking toward the future, and I think that the experiences we've had have shaped, I for me, coursework, mm-hmm. methodologies, pieces that I'm writing, how I work with my students, and I think in some ways uh, working um, from the field of gender, sexual, and women's studies, even redefining what it looks like to be a mom mm-hmm. in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't matter which background we come from. Um, and the fact that we're dealing with theology and religion and feminism, et cetera, and yet here we are doing what the academy does not expect. 
-hmm. raising children, making it through the program, depending on community, not being so highly individualistic that it's all about my merit, but it's a communal effort. And then bringing that to the academy as a valid way of knowing and doing Mm -hmm. academic work. Absolutely. And these experiences that I've had as well have also shaped the way that I approach. Um, So, you know, when I'm when I'm lucky, I get to, you know, shape my own courses. Right. So maybe it's a topics course um, in ethics. And while there's all sorts of things that I could focus on, you know, for as an example, this semester, I'll be teaching a narrative course, a narrative and feminist ethics course. And this is very much a way to honor the, the women's experiences, right, in, in shaping their own moral agency and, and who they are in the world. But it's also like to encourage, right, my students to think closely about the value of telling their stories, uh, their stories of struggle, the way that our presence in the academy is a counter story itself. And so to have them think about their own embodied um, being as a counter story itself that is coming from a, a community, right, and is being sort of carried through. So I think about that. You know, I also mm, think about my rage course <laughs> <laughs> and the kind of anger. Uh, and, 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 you know, we can theorize anger, um, but I, I, I think about, you know, the the ways that women, queer women of color feminists, right, have have thought about um, the meaning and function of anger. And a lot of it, too, is is rooted in grief. And I think about the the number of sort of dark nights of the soul, right, I had trying to move through these life experiences and the grief and the anger that was a part of that, that you're oftentimes asked to just swallow, you know, just, just take it, don't really express this, what you're going through. And so teaching a course on women and rage, right, is a way for me also to, to hopefully help to em, em, empower sort of, Sarah Ahmed calls it, this willfulness, right, these willful women, um, but women who are willing to own, right, their grief, to own their anger, and to utilize that and deploy it in ways that can create social change or change of structures. Similarly, I teach a course on narrative and counter narrative, mm-hmm. and I frame it as a decolonial feminist, mm-hmm. transnational mm-hmm. way of um, through telling one's lived experience, not only process one's trauma. I use a lot of Gloria Ansaldúa's work mm-hmm. and this whole sort of herida abierta, this open mm-hmm. wound, the woundedness of being uh, erased and um, made invisible, mm-hmm. the lack of sort of vision, what it means to be not just a woman of color or a kid of color or a queer kid or whatever it is that is bringing you to that space of recognizing your your woundedness. Mm-hmm. And I am able to include a lot more people than we would imagine who can then address their rage, their anger, their trauma. But another thing that I've found is that they start all of a sudden discovering other aspects about themselves, not mm-hmm. just those painful spaces in their life that they are not able to express in other courses, but things that are really interesting that have also been erased, mm-hmm. right? Interesting not because it's just the emotion that is the result of real crises or pain, but little aspects of them that were kept hidden. Mm-hmm. And sort of the religious ethics part of it comes through, right? The the popular religion aspect of their family or migration stories or immigration stories. Mm-hmm. And in that way, I think 
we together process, mm-hmm. right? Using this lived experience of having been navigated the academy as someone who was not necessarily perceived as someone who should be there because of the the sort of social context or location. And now sort of finding how special that lived experience really is has helped me then create courses in which I, I think I can assist people or empower people to navigate that. And together then we're learning and, and teaching together. Mm-hmm. So that's what I thought we would be doing this afternoon. I don't know if you have sort of an ending thought in terms of where we are with our courses or where we are now to all those who asked, I don't know how you did it. Here we are doing it. And um, in a way, this is a way to say thank you as well. So thank you so much for coming and having this conversation with me today. Um, I think it's been really fruitful and I look forward to being able to continue the dialogue so that we can um, keep this as a part of people's awareness of um, some of the struggles, but also skill sets of Latina mothers in the academy. And we're compañeras y hermanas, and uh, la lucha continúa. Adelante. Mm-hmm.